Bonjour, bonjour, and welcome to another episode of EveryoneHatesMarketers.com, the no fluff actionable marketing podcast for marketers, marketing consultants, founders, and tech people who are just sick of shady, aggressive marketing. I'm your host, Louis Denier. In today's episode, you learn how to build influencer programs that actually work. My guest today is a serial entrepreneur and the founding partner of Timeshare CMO. She's held marketing and e-commerce leadership roles at companies such as PlantSense that were sold to Parrot, eBay, PayPal, and Checkpoint Software. She has a few superpowers, including marketing analytics, campaign attribution, budget allocation, storytelling, and content marketing. She contributes to VentureBeat, the growth marketing conference, and is the guest lecturer at Cornell University. And she describes herself as a rather direct and provocative character, especially on Twitter. So we'll give a few more details on this in the next few minutes. Let me uh, welcome you, Melinda Barley, uh, on the show. Welcome aboard. Thanks, Louis. Glad to be here. So let's talk about influencer programs. But actually, no, let's not talk about that just right now, because I think there's a, a fun story to tell about how we came to talk to each other and why you're on this podcast right now. So I'm just going to start and maybe you can you can complete the story. Um, so I think it's a listener of the podcast a few a few weeks ago who who replied to a thread um, where you're including um, mentioning my podcast. And I think you, you saw the title and then all hell broke loose in a sense, right? <laughs> So tell me more about what happened when you saw the title and what happened after that. So it wasn't just you, believe it or not. So I very rarely start ranting on Twitter when it's just one thing I see. I, I'm really good at picking up on patterns. And it actually seen a LinkedIn post that day where a person who was a, a marketing consultant said that somebody called him a marketing consultant and that made him embarrassed and ashamed. And I thought, well, that's really strange. Like, if you don't like what you're doing, maybe you shouldn't be doing it. Mm -hmm. And poor Louis, I came across your podcast. That is how I discovered your podcast. And uh, I think since we've both come to understand that we have more that unites us than divides us. But what I was reacting to was something that we see our clients going through all of the time. They feel inside of their organizations like people hate them. And particularly in tech, there has been sort of a, a backlash or a, a response, even to good people, right? The baby may be throwing out with the bathwater. And so marketers often feel, even good ones, under siege. And so I feel fiercely protective of them. And that's why I got excited on Twitter. <laughs> yeah, and I completely agree with you, right? And, and this is actually why the podcast even exists, because I feel the same and I feel people misunderstand marketing. Um, and as you said, you said it like very well on, on your Twitter rant, saying that a lot of companies will build for ego, competition, gold rush, but success only comes when you build what people either really want or desperately need. And mm -hmm. you also said something that I completely agree with, which is I can't tell you how many times founders say that they want strategic marketing, but are unwilling to do the hard work of defining a mission, a customer segment, a messaging structure. Without these artifacts, you're wasting your time and money. Amen to that as well. Completely agree, 100%. And I guess the sarcastic title of the podcast is really to play on this emotion and, you know, to play on the emotion that people already have. So a lot of people feel that, you know, they are being hated and to show that there is a, a real way to do marketing that is not hateful, that is based on full focusing on people and that drive results. And if we're pulling in the people who actually think this is a hating podcast and then they start to like marketers, that's a win. Exactly. I, I don't know if I had 
that many of them. I do know for sure that a lot of people are not marketers are listening to this because they know that they need marketing their life, but they don't want to use the, the shitty marketing they see. Um, mm -hmm. But that's the trick with marketing. That's also something that I think is interesting is I think good marketing doesn't seem like marketing to people outside of marketing, the marketing world, right? It's like, it's so good that you, you just talk about it with your friend. It's so good that you buy the product. It's so good that you just feel like this brand understand you and you wouldn't call it, oh, that's brilliant marketing. So however, bad marketing that gets noticed. That's right. That's right. It's often when it's done well, it's taken for granted and the credit is given to product and engineering. And when it's done poorly, it's blamed on marketing. Exactly. So let's go to the, to the topic we picked uh, together, right? Which is quite specific and actionable, which is how to build influencer programs. And we talked, I talked about this topic a few months ago. And I remember receiving an email after that saying, you know, I didn't think you would ever talk about influencer marketing in this podcast because it's a lot of bullshit. Um, <laughs> To which I answered, good influencer marketing is just marketing 101. And so even though I absolutely hate the term, I have to admit, it's something that always existed and that will always exist. And you need to harness the power of people who are trusted by others to, to sell your stuff. So you, I think, have a similar view on it. So on our email uh, thread, you were saying that there's a lot of crap around influencer programs, influencer marketing in general. Can you tell me more about this? Well, certainly most famously, you know, the influencer marketing has been in the news in a negative way on the Fire Festival. I mean, that's going to be right. uh, exhibit A for anyone who has the position that influencer marketing is crap. And I actually believe that the, the, fire, uh, the fire Festival program proved the power of influencer marketing. It actually proved the adage that nothing spreads the word faster about a bad product than good marketing. For people who, um, who've never... Uh heard about the fire festival or what happened can you describe briefly what happened well i'll do my best but essentially there was um the person who decided to do it and i'm sorry his specific name escapes me but the gentleman who started the fire festival who's now in prison for this essentially perpetrated a fraud he got several high profile celebrities to endorse his music festival under sort of false sort of pretenses. Um, some of them also did not adhere to FTC guidelines, which we can talk more about. And essentially people showed up at this festival in the Bahamas. And since I know you curse, it was a shit show. I mean, you can look at the pictures on Instagram. They were promised first-class accommodations. They got cheese sandwiches and styrofoam. They were promised, you know, fancy lodging. They were staying in tents. They barely had enough water. It was a disaster. And people were wringing their hands over influencer marketing. But I'd argue that the problem wasn't influencer marketing. The problem was the fraud. The problem was that the product, the festival itself, was not a product. Absolutely. And, and if the festival delivered on its promise, if the product that they were selling was, were actually good, it would have been a, a massively successful influencer marketing campaign that would have led to a massively successful festival that probably would have gone for years and years. If people want to know more about this actual issue with the fraud that, and the, the entire story, uh, you can check out on Netflix. There's an entire mm -hmm. documentary and about Hulu. it. Yeah, There's two of them. It's, yeah. it's fascinating. It's really fascinating in terms of psychology and how they, how they completely forget about the people that will actually attend the festival and just focus so much on the, on the fame, on the, all those emotions that you shouldn't really think about when you, when you do marketing the right way. So that's actually a perfect example to, to talk about the, the fact that 
it's not necessarily influencer marketing that is bad. It's it's when it's not done properly that you're starting to see some some issues. So maybe before diving into how to do it properly, what in this example, the influencer marketing campaign was done very well, right? They reached out to supermodels yes. and all of that. And it was brilliant. I mean, they sold what, 4,000, 5,000 tickets. They sold out at a thousand bucks a piece in like four days. Yeah. I think it's even more expensive than that. Yeah. They made crazy ton of money and they managed to get artists to be booked and, and all of that without a venue. And uh, yeah, fantastic. On the marketing front, they really managed well, but the product was shit. But on the contrary, then, can you pinpoint some examples or like maybe some, some components of bad influencer marketing per se, like what you shouldn't do when you do influencer marketing in the first place? Well, the most, uh, the most important thing is actually to be compliant with the law. After the fire festival, I, you know, and it's hard to tell in this current administration in the United States how, how the law might be enforced, but certainly that the trend was towards the FTC cracking down. And in fact, some influencers did have problems. If someone is an influencer, they actually need to know the law and they actually have to be compliant with the law. And there are ways to do it. The, the software platforms right now are not doing a great job of enabling brands and influencers to be compliant. We think we have found a way to, to handle that, but it's that's the most important thing. You need to be using hashtag promo, hashtag ad, or somehow disclose. So think of it this way. Years ago, if you had a television commercial and you had a brand spokesman, if you've noticed in the television, it'll say paid spokesman. Even in late night TV, when they're selling, you know, whatever it is they're selling, it'll say paid spokesperson. There's always a disclosure that the person was paid for the testimonial. And it's not okay to not disclose that. And that, because that leads to a trust problem. And we can prove that the results were just as great. You can get great results because people know that this happens. People aren't stupid. I mean, people understand that there are paid celebrities. That doesn't stop them from buying a great product. So there's no reason to hide it or to fake it. I think there's only downside. Can you just define briefly what the FTC is for people who might not be aware of it in the inside the United States or even outside? Oh, yeah. The Federal Trade Commission. It's a government agency. It is designed to sort of enforce a number of different things in the way that interstate commerce is done in the United States. But they also cover advertising regulation and advertising law. And we do have laws in the United States about truth in advertising and disclosure of payment for endorsement. And I suppose the FTC is quite obviously leading the way when it comes to legislation in this domain. And I suppose the European Union and other countries might look up to them when it comes to those regulations. So even though what we're going to talk about now is going to be, how should I say that, strictly linked to the US when it comes to the law, I think what you're going to say, what we're going to say in the next few minutes apply to everyone who are looking to do those type of campaigns to make sure that they are in line with the law and that they are treating their people, the people they're reaching out uh, fairly as well, right? I would suggest it. I, I can't speak to the laws in other countries, but in the same way that I would advise my clients to be compliant with GDPR because it's the right thing to do, even if they only sell to Americans, it's to be fair and to respect consumer privacy. It's just as important to disclose advertising, even if you don't have laws in your country. It's psychologically and morally and ethically the right thing to do. Absolutely. So before we dive in into what are the actual laws that the FTC cover in this case and how should you deliver a program that fits within this law, I just want to have a, a quick rant about influencer marketing briefly and then we go into it. And the reason why I want to rant about it is because 
it seems like this is very novel. You know, it's something that ha happened in the last five years. Everyone is talking about it. That before that, there was no influencer marketing. And I want to call bullshit on that for, for three <laughs> main reasons, right? And it's all based on the principle of persuasion that, that Cialdini kind of talked about in his book, right? Influencer marketing always existed in marketing since marketing exists even before that. And the, for, for the three reasons behind that is one, uh, the authority, you know, people follow the lead of credible, knowledgeable experts. Mm -hmm. They have the consensus. People will look to the actions and behaviors of others to determine their own. And then you have the likability, the liking. We like people who are similar to us. We like people who pay us compliments and we like people who cooperate with us towards mutual goals. So if you combine the liking, the authority and the consensus, that gives you the power of influencer marketing. So half of the persuasion principles that Cialdini talked about in his book are relevant to influencer marketing. So it's something that you should always focus on when you do marketing is to focus on those persuasion principles that go back to the very basics of what marketing truly is. And I just wanted to say that because there's nothing new. And even, even if you call it something else in the next 10 years, it's still going to be relevant to, to make sure that people will always look up to other people who look like them, who they find credible and they will follow their lead. I just wanted to say that. So let's move on to the FTC and the laws. So what are the laws or what are the criteria that in the US in particular uh, you must abide to when you're building an influencer program? Well, we also have a law in the United States about talking about the law. <laughs> and the first important thing is to say, I'm not a lawyer. So uh, I'm, not giving, I'm not giving legal advice. I'm not a lawyer. I'm not qualified. I don't know your situation. If The larger your brand, the more important it is that you work with in-house counsel on this so that you can have access to the most up-to-date knowledge. If you're a small firm, I think that the FTC actually has a really, they did a great job. Even if you're not in the United States, you can go to the FTC, you can probably Google FTC guidelines for influencers and they put them out, I think it was last year or the year before, and they're very clear. They tell you how to comply. And it's very simple. They just want you to disclose it. They just don't want you to hide it. And they approved, I think, you know, and they say that it is up to the individual influencer to be compliant. So brands have to ensure that their their influencers are as much as they can, right? They can't control everything, but to the best of their ability. And the influencers themselves have to take it upon themselves if they participate in these programs to disclose their relationship. And my understanding is from the lawyers I've talked to, Again, I'm not a lawyer, but my understanding is that even if you give so much as a T-shirt, right, or a Starbucks gift card, that is a paid relationship and it should be disclosed. Right. So anything from swags that you send over the post in exchange for a tweet or just a, an actual sum of money in exchange for them to like share something on Instagram or, or to their list, that's a paid relationship, right? Right. So it's not, it's not someone said something nice about you on Twitter. So you sent them a t-shirt. That's not the same thing. This is please blog about us and we will give you X. That right. is, that is what they call quid pro quo or, or trade essentially. When that happens, that, then you're required to disclose. So I mean the other way around, which is we'll send you a t-shirt and in exchange, you, you're going to post a tweet about us. Right. Makes sense. So, Okay. And, and you've, you've actually built influencer programs like this that are com compliant to the best of your knowledge, obviously, as you, as you said, very uh, rightly so. You're not a lawyer, but you, you did talk to some. Um, so let's maybe go through the steps you took to build a very effective influencer program that worked and that was, was in line with the law, right? So yes. you're probably um, 
you'll be able, obviously, to give us an example of a company you work with where you did that. But for the sake of the show, let's try to extract the steps you took to make it happen. Shall we? Sure. Step one. Let's do it. Step one, you have to know who, as always, as Louis said, nothing changes in marketing. And so in the sense of what are the basic steps, you have to know who you're trying to influence specifically. So if you're trying to influence, if you're trying to sell makeup, who is going to buy your makeup? Then you want to look for the people who can actively influence them. If you don't start from the customer first, it's not going to work. So that's the most important step. And I would say that when we get to talking about the specifics, this program was successful because this client knew their customer and had done their segmentation so clearly that the selection of the people in the program could be done uh, well. Right. And let's go into the specifics straight away, because I think this is already super, super important and super interesting. So the company you work for did it very well, uh, but perhaps we can teach people how to do it, or at least what are the things they should really do to make sure they have a clear customer segment in front of them that says, okay, those are the people we must influence, and those are the people that will bring us the highest uh, revenue, the highest profit, that will be the easiest to sell to, there might be other criteria. So how do you advise companies and, and people listening to, to do it efficiently? So there's no shortcut. In fact, in one of uh, in our pitch decks to clients, we have a meme that says one does not simply growth hack. Thank, so thank we, fuck for that. Yes. Really. Yes. There's no, and it says there are no silver bullets. There's only persistence and determination. And sometimes you get lucky. And our client, which is DVD Netflix, we'll talk about the specifics of that in a moment. Had not only Netflix's sort of power of segmentation and data driven, but the client actually went into the through deep seg through sort of deep research and surveys and customer interviews, got at specifically who was would be interested in the DVD Netflix, which is not entirely the same. Although shockingly, three quarters of the people who have DVD subscriptions also have a streaming account. Hmm. So they're not, it's a Venn diagram. There is a subset of people who do both. And there are some set of people who are DVD only. It's a smaller group. And so knowing what made them different, unique, and special versus the larger Netflix segmentation is absolutely a best practice and all credit to Vanessa Fisk and her team at DVD Netflix for that. Let's talk briefly about Netflix and, and how they came to, to being this multi-billion dollar company. They started selling DVD, Right. In fact, in the user testing research that we had done long before we did this program, our favorite, when we were doing sort of user testing, we put it in front of someone who didn't have a DVD account and they said, this is like Netflix, but for DVDs. <laughs> That's really good. Yeah. Which um, was awesome. <laughs> I think Netflix is, I don't want to say something stupid, but I think they are what, 20 years old, something like that? Yes, in fact, uh, the DVD just celebrated its 20th anniversary this last year, and we actually helped build a, a campaign around that where we asked longtime customers to open, to try to remember what their first DVD was. We looked it up for them and then surprised them with it on camera, which was really well received. Nice. That sounds really good as well. We might have time to talk about this. So you, you said step one is to know your customers inside out, and it seems like Netflix on the, the side of the, the DVD Netflix they did some research in, in terms of what are the common characteristics of people who subscribe to DVD Netflix, right? Yep. And they also looked at Redbox, right? Because there's, a, there's an overlap. So who, one, you have to have a DVD player in your house. So if you don't have a PlayStation or an Xbox or a DVD player, you, you're not going to be in the target market. 
But it turns out that five of seven, and they knew this from their research, five of seven Redbox users subscribe to Netflix. So, so what's they Redbox knew, for people who, who don't know it? Ah, yes. Redbox is also a, it's a local DVD distribution. So imagine a kiosk in a grocery store where you walk in and there are physically discs inside. It's like the old movie rental places of, for those of us who are old enough to remember them, like Blockbuster, but it's a kiosk in a grocery store. So you can go in, you put your credit card in, you pick whatever movie or game you want, and then you rent it and it's so many dollars a day. And you can imagine like people forget to return it. They have late fees, just like you used to with a video cassette. Right. Thanks. And so they've realized that people subscribing to DVD Netflix, seven out of eight, you said? Uh, uh, th I think it was three quarters of the three people that, that subscribed to DVD also had a Netflix streaming account. And then so they weren't the people, th people think of them as old, right? People think, oh, who, who has DVDs, right? Well, the other difference is that Netflix DVD has about 100,000 titles and Netflix streaming has about 6,000 titles. Right. And, and Netflix, uh, the streaming service also takes off titles every day, re-add new ones. And so it's, it's, their libraries is actually not expanding that much. They don't just add movies, right? They, they take them off as well. I know, for example, that I'm a big fan of The Office, you know, the US uh, TV show. Sure. And in the European Netflix, I mean, in Ireland, at least they took it off. And that was, that was just a stab in my heart. That was that's <laughs> terrible news for me. Okay, so go back, going back to knowing your customers, something super interesting here. They've done research when it comes to understanding who exactly are their people. And they are not thinking of Netflix DVD as the silo of a company that just doesn't, where the cons consumers only deal with Netflix and then they, they don't deal with any other companies in the world, right? They realize that they also subscribe to Redbox. They realize a lot of other things. So what other stuff have they, have they realized from, and you mentioned the customer interviews and surveys, which is, I'm, I'm, I would be super happy to dive into a bit more. What question did they ask or what would they, did they want to know from those customers? They did a brilliant job in their survey research that got to the heart of when and how people watch DVDs. So it's a different, in many cases, a different experience. People who were renting DVDs were often doing it with other people. And also there's a sort of a belief that people who watch DVDs in the United States must be living in the Midwest. They must not be, you know, with it people on the coast. But it turns out a huge number of DVD subscribers are on the coasts. So it's a, often, I want to watch this movie and I want to watch it with a group of people. It's the movie night experience. I'm going to have food. We're going to watch this together. And understanding that sort of drive for why to make movies sort of like a community or collaborative experience, a shared experience versus Netflix and chill, which <coughs> is maybe not always alone, right? But is often alone, is often a thing that's done alone. And so they're very different experiences and understanding the, the, the context in which the, the, the product was consumed was really sort of the basis or the kernel, if you will, for where, you know, we ultimately went um, in the influencer marketing. And this is why I love customer research. And I strongly believe the same thing than you. It's just step one or even step zero of your marketing. And understanding the context is so critical because we as marketers tend to forget the entire context. We tend to think that our company or product is the only thing that people care about in a daily basis. We tend to think that they, they use it in isolation compared to all of the rest. And understanding the context is so critical because you can then embed your marketing within the context instead of thinking of the product, 
you think about, as you said, the community driven thing, like the fact that you're sharing an experience with your friends instead of watching a DVD. So do you remember or do you know what question did they ask in the survey to understand this particular element that was critical for you uh, to build the influencer program? It's been a while because they've been our client for four years. So I've had that survey, the results of that survey sort of living in my brain for four years. So it'd be hard to remember the specific question, but I will say it was quantitatively exhausting. I mean, they hired really good people who knew what they were doing, right, to do, to really ask in depth, how many times a week do you watch? Who do you watch with? And then you start being able, when you have enough statistical significance, you can then cross tab and see, you know, where do the users live? And so one of the primary segments, there were about five different consumer segments, but out of all of this research came this one segment that we wanted to focus on for the influencer program. And it was a segment that they call bond builders, which are the people that, that want to have these relationships. And often they were women, they were often moms. And they were sort of family driven and they often lived in the South or the Middle West. So they, this was sort of part of their, not all, right? No, no segmentation is, you know, a perfect segmentation is mutually exclusive, what a collectively exhaustive, but you're always going to, human nature isn't like that. And so, but by and large, that was the group of people we were going after. And why did you pick this one as opposed to the other four? That's a great question. So a couple things. One is Netflix DVD and Netflix streaming are part of the same company. Netflix streaming has its own influencer program called the stream team. And they have their own segments they're going after. And so one is sort of, you know, friendly. We want to be friendly. We're all on the same team. But another is market confusion. We don't want to have two different, you know, programs targeting the same people. Mm-hmm. So one is sort of, you know, respecting our, our colleagues in the growth part of the business, right? DVD under, that's, an, I think when I talk to the bus- my business school about this, when I lecture to students, I say, as a marketer, you also have to understand the context in which you operate inside your company and where you fit and understanding that streaming is the growth engine and DVD is the cash cow. You're not going to get all of the same influencers that are going to use the Netflix sort of stream team program. Makes complete sense. Um, and I just want to go back to the questions uh, that I know it's been four years, so you don't necessarily remember them, but it's, you mentioned a few minutes ago, basically the what, the when, the where, the how, the why. And it mm-hmm. seems like those are the questions that you really need to care about when it comes to the use of your product, right? And yes, so, it's not just what they do, it's why they do it. That, right. the, I always say to my team, I love data. I'm, this is what we do is quantitative marketing. But the data only tells you what. You need user testing, you need interviews, you need home visits, you need empathy to really understand why. And when you understand why, that's where the best marketing can come from. So why they buy or why are they using the product right now? Is that... Yes, in, in this case, and that, that's going to vary, right? I would think, so this is an established brand. And what, what DVD knew was that people were passionate. People have been subscribers for 15 or 20 years. So in this case, it's a different question than if you were a brand new company and trying to figure out who might. But in the end, you still have to start with who is using your product and try to build out from there. And the question are always around, yeah, those, those five stuff. So the what, the when, the, the where, the how, as you said, how often, when exactly during the day, uh, with who, why, and just asking those questions in surveys and then customer interviews, just talk to people. And this is something we talk a, a lot on the podcast. You also said user testing, which is like more kind of a, where you show them a website or, or your product. And then you said something else, which is super interesting, home visits, which I think mm-hmm. something... People will be like, home visit, what, what do you mean? 
So tell me just a bit more about this method of customer research to try and understand customers. So it's fascinating. Netflix actually had a, by the way, it's such a best practice. Netflix corporate has a website where you can take a quiz. It's just, it's for people who work inside the company and the people and like vendors or contractors or consultants. And they ask you to take the quiz and they actually tell you which Netflix segment you are most like. Mm. They actually know their customer that well. And what I learned from that, and I'm, I'm getting to, I'm going to answer your question in a minute. It's a roundabout answer, but I'm going to get there. What I learned from that was that I'm actually not the target. I personally, as much as I love movies, I have a theater degree. I have been a DVD subscriber, I swear, for almost 20 years. It's one of the reasons I think they were happy to work with me as I loved and knew their product. But I wasn't their target. Turns out my better half, my husband, was the target because he had the psychology they were looking for, which is the person who cares more about the quality of the film than they do about having instant gratification. You want to watch, he wants to watch the best thing. He doesn't, if he has to wait two days in the mail, he doesn't mind. He'd rather wait two days for a better movie than watch something that's less interesting on streaming. And that's the person they're, that's the person they're trying to get at. So being able to identify sort of exactly that, that, and, and have somebody I could relate to, then myself and everyone else in the team, we were looking for people in our, that were like that, because it turned out very few of us fell into that category. So everyone on our team subscribed, did the, did the study, and then we set out to find just simply people that we knew who would fit that profile and then ask them lots of questions. When do you use Redbox? How do you use it? Why do you use it? What's DVD all about? Do you know about it? Where would you learn? And, it's, and I, as a marketer, there's no substitute for it. I learned it at eBay, which was my first job in tech outside of business school, which is just pick up the phone. Your customers are so excited to hear from you. The, it's, imagine any brand that you love and someone from that brand calls you and says, I want to hear your opinion. You would be flattered and your customers will be too. And that gives you so much more fuel and creativity. I like to actually take notes about the words people use on calls. And in these days now where you can actually record and transcribe the call, you can do it even easier because using their language for describing the product is so much more effective, both in search queries, SEO, but also in conversion and effectiveness. Yeah, that's a fantastic answer. There isn't much to add to this. I completely agree with you. And this is, this is the beauty of good marketing when you understand customers so well is that it gets easier doesn't it? It really, really gets easier. You're not wondering where can I reach them? Which channel are they on? Who influenced them? How should I talk to them? No, if you do your research very well, like you described, you should nail it. Obviously it takes work, but it, it should be easier. And about home visits, tell me more about the, the concept of actually going to someone else's home to see how they, they use a product in context. There's actually your user researchers, if you have them, if you're in a large enough company or if you, or, but the basic thing, it's just like picking up the phone, except that you're doing it at home. Mm -hmm. You're asking them. So you usually give them something for their time, just like a survey. Um, when I learned it at PayPal, when I worked at PayPal, we flew to Arizona, I remember, and went to home visits and we sat with people in their homes while they used PayPal. And there's a difference between bringing them into your office where they're more inclined to tell you what you want to hear because mm -hmm. they're in your world than when they're in their home. People And DVD is a very intimate brand. You watch it in your home. So it has, it has different connotations. I mean, just not to give away the ending of the story, but one of the gifts we gave our influencers the first year was pajama bottoms and hot chocolate. 
because that's the, that's the experience you have when you use DVD. I'm glad you're mentioning eBay and PayPal because I do remember a colleague of mine mentioning that he went to this conference, and I think that's probably around 12 years ago, uh, where eBay talked about how they do home visits uh, and customer interviews to actually understand people. And apparently that was just something crazy that most people were like, how can you do that? Like, how, how helpful is it? But I suppose when you went to Arizona, did it, how, it's going to be a very leading question, but did it really bring you a lot of clarity towards who you should serve? Uh, in fact, I mean, I worked at both eBay and PayPal and it, that experience actually helped me come up with the plan for this. I was the one who proposed influencers um, and worked with Vanessa to tie it through. So it came, I can draw a direct line from that experience all the way through to what we did at DVD. And what it, well, one, it's, it's your senses are all awakened. Look, we're all, and, and in those days we didn't have Skype. It's hard to believe. Like that was long before eBay acquired Skype. We had AOL Instant Messenger and we had, you know, we just weren't doing things the same way. And so one, it makes it very tangible. You know, user experience people talk about making personas, but it's one thing to look at a persona on paper and it's another to go to Fred and Mary's house yeah. and see how they live and breathe the air that they breathe and look into their eyes and then you know them in a way that you'll never know them on a piece on a data or on, on in a piece of data or da a piece of number. And so that is very related to sort of eBay's way of doing this work, which is a little bit different from PayPal. But at eBay had a program, I think they still do, called Voices. And Voices, every six weeks, a group of people, I think it was 12, would be flown in at eBay's expense for several days, four or five days. Now, remember, we were the Google and Facebook of the time. We were darling. We were throwing off cash, 85% gross margins. So we had cash and we would fly in these people and they would sit in a room. It was always a well-chosen well mix of buyers and sellers from different categories, no competitors, right? So you want to have this sort of like open group that feels comfortable and safe. And executives would come and talk to them. But the most important part of voices was that every product manager had to present their product to voices and get feedback. And that product could not ship to site without community sign off. If only companies were doing this today. I mean, I know some of them do, but the vast majority don't. And if only they did that, that would bring so much clarity and, and so much understanding of their market. A small, a small thing. I, I interviewed recently 25 customers. That was what, a, three, a few weeks ago. And just, I spent 30 minutes each on the phone. And that just, as you said, it just awakens all your senses. It, it brings so much clarity. You start to understand how to talk to them. You use the same words. It just, it just changed everything as a marketer. So I would really encourage people listening to this to do it, do it now. And there's no excuse. People, as you said, love to talk uh, to you and when you ask about their life and their problems and all of that. Going back to this influencer marketing, because we haven't really talked about that yet, but I think this is a very strong basis for it. Now that you knew the segment that you needed to go after, what did you do next to identify who to, to pick for in, on the influencer side? Well, the reason this conversation happened was that Vanessa had engaged a, an influencer agency. And I want to be careful about how I talk about it because I don't want to be self-serving because I do think that traditional sort of influencer marketing agencies, they, they do things for the way, for the reasons that they do them. And many of them grew out of the PR function and PR is important. Oh my gosh, it's incredibly important. It has traditionally had different goals and different objectives 
that are or may not align with the things that we just talked about. And the influencer program that she had started with that group um, was just not, it wasn't giving her results that she, that, that could be sold internally. Netflix is a very data-driven culture. The man, the leader of the, of that line of the business is a mechanical engineer by trade. He's not comfortable with things that are too squishy. He really wants something. He wants us to be able to put metrics around things and so that he can uh, justify them inside of the data-driven culture. And so she just didn't feel she was getting the results she was looking for. She felt it was it was hard to manage and maintain, even with only 20 people in the program. She felt that some of the people there were what, what I would call mercenary. You know, they were pay for play. They were not, you know, engaged and loving the brand. So there were just a number of things that didn't work for her. And we had been doing, you know, for anybody, this is not an overnight sensation. So when I tell this story, you've got to know that there are two and a half years of history of Vanessa and I working very closely together on analytics around the business, around the surveys, on a ton of other work that we had done for her. So this didn't just like come out of a, you know, there's no like, ooh, I was sitting in the bath and I suddenly had this stroke of genius. There's, there's just nothing but years of hard work that came to this moment. And one of the monthly visits that I do, because I'd go once a month, and we, we just sat in a conference room and talked about this problem. And we, and I want to tell you, it was probably six hours. It was very intense. We just sat down and said, what are we going to do about this? And as we were talking and talking and talking, the word community kept coming up. And that's when I drew the straight line back to eBay. I said, oh my God, Vanessa, that's what's missing. There's no community here. Netflix is such a, it's a technology company. It's a brilliant company. You have the movies. Movies are the things that we love as Americans. And when, and when I did the brand pitch, because this is a U.S. only based company, I had the luxury. It never happens anymore and probably shouldn't where you get to talk about things from a uniquely American perspective. And so I got to talk about, this was in the middle, right? We were in, in the thick of the post-2016 election. And we both realized that movies were one of the last places that people could connect with each other, no matter what political persuasion they had. You, people like Star Wars, no matter who they voted for. People like The Matrix, no matter who they voted for. And so those are things that bring us together. And so we realized there was this opportunity, a rare and unique opportunity to bring community. And we wanted to build a community around film. And that was the basis for this program. And again, the sense of belonging to hang out with people who believe in the same thing or like the same thing is deeply rooted in, in customers and people, right? And again, you can't really go wrong with this feeling to know that you need to harness the power of community of helping people connect with each other based on specific criteria. Uh, I just want to go back to that because as you said, and as I said, marketing hasn't changed. People haven't changed. It's just the methods perhaps to get to. Uh, are different, but the roots, the principles are the same. So I'm glad you mentioned that. So once you've identified that the community was the core thing you wanted to go after, how did you execute on it and what did you go, what did you do after that? So we then went and looked at the program that she had and what the, the, how I got her over the hump was to help, was to talk about micro influencers in particular. So the beauty of Netflix, again, this is where tactic meets company. I think good marketers don't just use the same tool. You have, you have a toolbox and you pick the tools that fit the situation. In this case, DVD with 100,000 titles had this long tail opportunity. There are blogs on the internet about Japanese sci-fi anime horror. And those people have strong communities around them. There are blogs around classic film. 
and black film, black exploitation, right? And there's Tagalog, the Filipino community loves film and has its own community. And so being able to find uh, the data on micro influencers was so compelling. Consumer trust is off the charts relative to macro influencers. Engagement rates are 8% plus. Um, they have almost half a percentage point of posts with comments. That's 10 times, okay? 10 times the comment rate on a macro influencer. And so instead of this sort of mercenary, we pay you X thousand dollars and you, and you build, do a thing for us, we build a relationship with a group of people and we encourage them to build a relationship with each other because that was the big learning from eBay. When you help connect your customers to each other, the, you know, the sort of, you know, evil marketing horn side of it is that you save money and customer support costs, but you also build a brand of people who love each other and they come and they stay for that which is, was a very par, uh, powerful part of eBay's success and turned out to be a very powerful part of the success of the DVD nation. And again, I'm not a big fan of, of the word micro-influencer. We have to use it because people use it, people understand you it. You have to have a word. You have to yeah. have a word indeed. Uh, how would you describe it, like briefly? Well, there's, you know, there's like seven different definitions right now. Um, we defined it, we were not afraid of people who had as few as a thousand followers if they were legitimate. So there were theater or film professors who had very small followings, but knew what they were talking about. Um, and since then, by the way, um, one of our DVD directors has actually gone on to produce her own short film with equipment that she bought from what she earned from the program. Another person um, out of this started out as just a blogger around classic film, and now she's a recognized journalist and goes to South by Southwest and Cannes. So it was recognizing even small folks who were doing what they did out of passion and love and finding a way to encourage them to do more of it. So that number, you've got to define it for yourself. Um, we defined it at the time as somewhere between about one and 10,000 followers. Right. So people who have a decent following, like a small following, but people who are not like, who don't have fake followers per se, they just have a very niche thing that they own, as you said, like would be like, something very narrow, like classical movies in the Jap and Japanese history, like someone who just focused on that, whatever else. And their people that follow them are very much more engaged than the traditional influencers who have a massive following because they have such a niche that people just dig what they say, what they do much more than, than bigger influencers. So that makes sense. How did you identify those people in the first place? Well, it's interesting. So there, I thought one of the things the DVD team did on this is them is they had been, they watched on social media to see who was already talking about them. So they, they first did that. They just paid attention to the conversation who was regularly, whenever some weird post would appear on Reddit about who rents DVDs anymore, who was saying that that was bullshit on social media. That's, that's that they knew that that was the core. The second thing they did was put a very vague announcement, very vague, because we still didn't know once we got approval, we were rushing as fast as we could to ship a platform. We still didn't know what, what would the rewards would be. So there was this vague sort of call in their um, monthly email and they got almost 8,000 applicants for the program. What was so, the, the call about? Like, what was briefly? The... It was very soft. It was very much like, do you like movies? Do you have a social media account? Do you want to try being part of a program where some vague reward may come to you at some point? <laughs> I mean, phrased much more professionally, but, you know, a very sort of soft call. And at the bottom, it wasn't even like, sign up now. It was just, hey, if you happen to be reading this and you're curious, 
Um, and then, then we drove them to a Google form where we asked, okay, what are your social media handles? You know, who are you? And so on. And then we actually vetted all of them one at a time. We went through, we did a pre-pass, my team did, but then the DVD team took their own look because there were, you know, you're kind of, this is a conversation, right? And so we learned from them and we got better at filtering. And then we did pat, then we, we would do multiple passes. Yep. This one looks like they have a lot of fake followers. Nope. This one isn't right. And that's how we got down to the original, to the original group of about 200 that we finally went with. For companies who don't have a massive following or email list like Netflix would have, how do you advise people to identify their influencers and, and get a, a reach out to them? So certainly, as Netflix did, or DVD did, identifying who's already talking about you. It's always better to encourage behavior that's already happening. Another thing that DVD Netflix did, very smart idea, was that when we were doing the 20th anniversary campaign last year, they asked the people that were already going on camera. So that they, we added more people into the program because they were already talking about us. The, the other thing that they did was once people were in the program and they would ask, they would give them rewards for inviting people into the program that they knew would be good, would be good additions. And so those are things that you can do even if you're a small firm. You know, it's starting with a nucleus. Get that first seed of people right, that first sort of, you know, starter group, even if it's only 20. Believe me, I, I just came back from the Social Media Strategy Summit, and even the largest companies are dealing with sometimes influencer programs as little as 20 people. They're a lot, they can be a lot of work to manage. Start with that small seed of people. And then when you get that right, then you'll build out in a more effective way. Right. And you focus on the tiniest audience possible, right? The ones that really, really fit everything you believe in, in terms of values, in terms of culture, in terms of, as you said, their amount of fake followers versus not, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And you start with this nucleus, as you said, and you ask for a recommendation from this small group because they are likely to know other people like them, right? That's right. Now, you've selected from 8,000 to 200 people. Right. And you've looked at criteria mm -hmm. like fake followers and whether they felt right, whether the values were there, whether whether you could feel like you could work with them. And then what happened? How did you go from that <laughs> to the next step? So then so actually there were the original 20 people which were that were in the previous program. They were grandfathered in at the highest level. And then we built a four tier program for the new folks to work their way up to. And what this allowed the DVD team to do was essentially start to manage and measure the impact. So we actually customized and built a platform for a lot less money than you would think that enabled people to both tweet and Facebook from that platform so we could measure their activities, but also they would upload the, those activities, whether by URL or so on, to the platform. And then that way we could confirm FTC compliance before rewarding them. And so we built a gamification and points reward system behind it where folks could earn everything from Amazon gift cards to popcorn bowls. So we built it and it's beautiful. I've got pictures I can show you, but the, the most interesting part of it was that you'd think there's, so I'd love to tell you, oh, gee, no problem. Happy ending, right? Except that what happened was that the people that were originally in the program loved it, loved it, thought it was, it was better than any brand program they'd ever been in. They loved that everything was clear, that they understood what was going to happen. And in fact, they gave us a net promoter score of 93. But all of these new people we brought in gave us a net promoter score of 36. Hmm. So this was a problem because engagement rate, their, their participation rates, activity rates were not great. And this was bad. 
And so what we had to do was iterate quickly and find out what was not working for them. And what we realized that a lot of these folks with these small followings, they were passionate about DVD and loved it, but maybe they didn't know how to be productive. So we, and they also weren't as connected to the brand. So the DVD team started holding monthly webinars for every new batch of every cohort we brought in and we measured performance by cohort, right? So the people that are brought in before the change versus the people brought in after the change and they had monthly um, webinars to introduce themselves and make a human connection so that people said, ah, because what we discovered was that people really liked interacting with Vanessa and Annie. And they felt more connected to the program when they knew they were talking to them directly. We built a Facebook group so that they could talk to each other and have constant communication with the brand. And, and we made it easier. You know, we made some changes to the platform to make it easier. And all of those things, essentially, just, you can just see the level up rates we have in our presentation. You can see the hockey stick that comes when you listen to people and you make it easier. And so by the numbers, there was essentially per user on average, there were 27 value-added activities they, they, they did per user, 163 for the directors who are in the largest end of the program, 7x the number of blog posts in one year. Their entire 2020 or 2019 content calendar is done. Um, it's been a pretty remarkable ride. And when you talk about value-driven thing that they did, uh, so is it like sharing a tweet, sharing a Facebook message, writing a blog post? What else? We sat down and created a whole sort of, you know, value added activities system. So everything from downloading the app to writing a blog post to hosting an Instagram story or a Twitter chat. And those had points, you know, various uh, levels of points associated with them based on how much effort uh, they were giving, right? Hosting a Twitter chat is a lot more work than, than tweeting something. And so uh, we basically, uh, and then those points, they can cash in for rewards on the platform. That sounds like, yeah, the perfect influencer program that, that respects the law, that also is in line with the company culture, that respects the people being part of it. How do you advise smaller firms, again, to do something similar? Have you come across any, I don't like to talk about softwares or programs too much on this show because softwares come and go, but do you have any advice for people to, to achieve that at a lower cost, perhaps, or without a lot of resources? A lot of the work that we did could be done with a Google Sheet and a Facebook group, if you're willing to put the time in. I love the way the VCs talk about money as frozen time, right? So you're going to spend one way or another. So you could do this. If, if this was the focus of your company, you could do this with one person, a Google Sheet and a Facebook group, if you, if you keep it to like 10 to 20 people. It's a lot of work. It is a lot of work. It is a full-time job, um, but it can be done. And so it's a question of focus, which is what I would tell any startup founder anyway, is that you shouldn't be in every channel all the time. You should pick one or two and really sort of concentrate and focus on that. Um, so it's not, again, pick your analogy, toolbox, golf club, bag, whatever. You have all of these things in here. Influencers aren't for everybody, but I think they're for a lot more people than are, are thinking about them right now. And there's some really interesting work that's being done even on B2B side. So I, I want to be careful not to sort of imply that this is the type of program that only works on a consumer basis. P p humans are humans. We're influenced by each other, whether we're at work or we're at home. Absolutely. There's no difference there, uh, apart from the role they have and decision-making when it comes to buying. But as you said, humans are humans. And when it comes to the prices, so you mentioned a, an interesting price you would give away, well, like pajamas and uh, a cup of hot chocolate or something like that, was it? 
Yeah, that was the annual gift for directors. So right. on top of their points, people who are at the highest end of the program get a special gift, right? There's a lot of surprise and delight. You want to really have people who are doing the most work for you feel nurtured and cared for. And so they got a special reward. And that's and we put a lot of thought into it. What is the annual gift? What is it that makes them feel part of the community and, and fits with with the brand? And it ties back to the entire context that you understand uh, that you understood from the customer research, which is, you know, the fact that when you're watching, when you're using Netflix DVD, it's more about watching something with friends and like a mo movie uh, on Saturday nights with, with friends and family rather than just watching it on your own. And so the prizes that you picked were probably in line with that. Yes. And that, that's exactly what that's about. And on top of that, I was talking about community. Um, Vanessa took that core of 20 people this last year. They had, they took them on an annual trip which they do every year now, they, they took them to the big DVD hub, you know, where the, it's fascinating, where all the DVDs are processed and mailed and Anaheim. And, the, you know, they went to Disneyland. But the one, another thing that she did was um, David Rather, who um, works with us and them, who is a, was a Roseanne screenwriter for 11 seasons, a really experienced um, writer, worked with them for a couple of hours on how to do a better blog post about movies. And, the quality of the blog posts that went up after that, but also people's commitment to the program because they felt invested in. So back to this idea of growing your own, you know, you're not going to have the money to pay Kylie Jenner if you're a startup, but finding really passionate, enthusiastic and engaged people and finding a way to invest in them and nurture them creates incredible loyalty and commitment, which, only, you know, Vanessa likes to say that you don't buy passion, you earn it. And I think that's true. Probably the perfect way to end this step-by-step -step towards uh, building proper influencer uh, marketing programs. Melinda, thanks so much for taking the time to do this. I have just three questions to ask you uh, before sure. I let you go. What do you Happy think to. marketers should learn today that will help them in the next 10 years, 20 years, 50 years? Well, I just had Avinash Kaushik, the, the evangelist for Google Analytics on my own podcast, um, the Stand Alive in Tech podcast, just this last week. And I asked him this question, and I think it's the right answer. And he said that if a marketer understands not only how to interpret data, but also how to communicate insights to others about that data and tell the story about the right thing to be done, they'll always have interesting and meaningful work. And the other thing is, I asked my team this question. So, you know, full disclosure, uh, Louis did give me some heads up, but I, I wanted to ask my team because I really think asking them is important too. And, and to a person, they said how important they felt it was to learn about people. And as we talked about, the data will tell you what, but the people is the only way to know why. And it's in the why where the solutions are. So I personally read in a wide, in a wide variety of fields. I read in neuroscience, consumer psychology, leadership, rhetoric. I have a theater degree, so I got a lot of training about storytelling in, in my younger and wilder days. But if that's not your field, storytelling, and whether it's writing or theater, is another great sort of field of inquiry. And to that end, I think it's important to learn about other people. It's important to take the time to learn about people other than your cohort. And I especially mean this in other countries. We Americans are really bad at this. We need to be better. Other races, other religions, other ages. A good marketer should be, be able to be empathetic. And my favorite example of that is the business school classmate of mine, a guy, and a particularly guy's guy, who was the brand manager for Tampax Tampons. <laughs> And I love this story because you, it's true. You can sell tampons as a man if you are empathetic enough and if you understand your customer well enough. 
And in some ways, I'd argue it's actually easier when you're not the target because you can step back and distance yourself from your own emotions. DVD is actually one of the hardest clients I've ever worked on because I love the product so much, but I'm not the target. I have to constantly remind myself that my first instinct with them may not always be right because I am not the psychological target. And lastly, I will tell young people because I made this mistake, don't get too comfortable because only a few years ago, I saw agencies basing their entire practice on Facebook video. <laughs> and you know, recently it's come out that Facebook's been overstating that and now we got problems. And so when I was a young marketer, Twitter, Facebook, even MySpace, they didn't exist. And so you've got to stay ahead of the curve. I had Tom Peters, the, um, the author of um, In Search of Excellence and is one of my books I recommend. Um, he was for many years one of the top 100 most influential people in Silicon Valley. And he told me, he's 75, he said, one day I looked up and saw that the herd was like, you know, a half a mile in front of me. And so I had to double down and he spent a year reading 100 books in order to catch up with the herd. And so now he's on fire again. And his Twitter feed is also just an inspiration. Like you just have to keep staying in front of the curve. Don't get complacent. On the back of that, what are the top three resources you recommend our listeners? That is a super hard question. I thought long and hard about that. It's because it, it really depends on what your training is and what your goals are. So we're in a growth phase now. And even though I have you know, have a business degree and have studied leadership, I have come back to reading books about entrepreneurship and leadership because it's one thing to learn about it in school and it's another to do it. So it's like a refresher and a reminder of that's what I want to be studying and leading. But if I was a junior marketer these days, I would say you can't go wrong with Seth Godin, who you had on your podcast. Pretty much anything he's written, you should read. I'm personally a big fan of The Dip and The Icarus Myth. Both are just like so tight so brilliant. I aspire to to speak with the efficiency that he does. Um, of course, David Ogilvie's on advertising. If you just want a reminder about how nothing ever changes. And I also recommend Tom Peters's book because it's called The Excellence Dividend because he is so clearly talking to us in tech about extreme humanization. It goes right to what we were just talking about earlier, Louis, about people and the importance of people, um, of making technology work for people, not the other way around. Wow, what an answer as well. Uh, Melinda, I, I can say I've really, really enjoyed our conversation and super glad we connected on Twitter, even though it didn't start necessarily in the right foot. Uh, you're clearly an expert in your field. I learned a lot from this hour conversation. Uh, so thank you very, very much for your time. Where can listeners connect with you, learn more from you? Uh, they can certainly find our company at timesharecmo.com as well as on Twitter. My personal Twitter feed is at MJB underscore SF. And uh, I welcome you to the conversation. And likewise, Louis, you know, it doesn't matter in the end how you found each other. We found each other and it's awesome. And you have a podcast as well. So repeat, uh, what's the title? Oh, yes. Thank you. The title of my podcast is called Staying Alive in Tech. And it's all about war stories from the past, as well as sort of practical advice for today. But it's really, if you want to really understand people have been doing tech for a long time, come and check us out. We're trying to do oral history of Silicon Valley. We've got some great stories. Fantastic. Once again, thank you so much. Thanks, Louis. That's it for another episode of everyonehatesmarketers.com. And this is the moment where I tell you to subscribe to our email list. So before you leave and go to another podcast or listen to another episode, I don't treat email list uh, the way people usually treat their email list. I really treat that as a one-to-one as -one conversation. So I'm going to send you very short and personal emails every two weeks, I would say, 
we, I'll inform you of guests in advance. I'll share with you my numbers and how many listens we get. And I'll also ask you for your feedback in terms of the questions we can ask future guests. And perhaps I can also uh, have you on the show uh, someday. So don't be afraid to subscribe. I'm not going to spam you. And you can always uns unsubscribe for sure if you wish. The second thing we need from you is your harsh and honest feedback. We know that this show is not perfect yet and we always uh, can improve. So you can send us your email at feedback at everyonehatesmarketers.com. Good or bad, please feel free to send me an email. And the last thing I like uh, from you is that if you did like the episode, please share it to your friends, your colleagues, or whoever might like it. And also please review it on iTunes or another service that you might use to listen to your podcast. Because if you leave us a five-star review, it means that more people will be likely to listen and we can spread the word quicker. So thank you so much once again and au revoir. And that's it for another episode of everyonehatesmarketers.com. Thank you so much for listening. I'm super, super grateful. I'd love for you to consider subscribing to my daily newsletter, Monday to Friday, called Stand the Fuck Out Daily. I send very short, hopefully interesting, surprising, shocking, entertaining content to help you stand the fuck out. It's at everyonehatesmarketers.com. You can subscribe for free and obviously unsubscribe whenever you want. I'm just going to read a couple of emails that I got recently as a reply. Juma said, your content attacks the mind primarily, which is such a good thing because most of us are skilled at what we do, but we don't have the courage to do it our way. Mark, who just subscribed a couple uh, days before, said, this is my first issue of your newsletter. Love it. Glad I subscribed. Brianna said, I just realized this morning that my email habit is now to one, came through the list, two, select all unread industry email except yours, three, delete and don't think twice, four, quickly skim yours. Amy said, also loving the new content is coming from you. It feels really lovely. Candle said, I like your writing a lot. It really resonates. There's so much bullshit out there. It's good to touch the authentic. And Chloe said, where is the I fucking love this email button? Brilliant. I hope you subscribe. You'll be joining more than 14,000 subscribers at this stage, which is crazy. It's the size of a small stadium. Anyway, thank you so much. See you on the other side.